It's a tumultuous day in England. The ravens at the tower are more restless than usual. The intermittent sound of weeping is coming from the royal rooms. It's the 2nd of May, 1536, and Queen Anne Boleyn has been arrested and locked in the Tower of London. Only the day before, she had been attending the May Day Joust when she noticed her husband, King Henry VIII, storm off and not return. Little did she know she was about to be arrested, accused of treason, incest, and adultery. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Having recently suffered a miscarriage of what appeared to be the long-awaited son and heir to the Tudor throne, she was ripped away from her daughter Elizabeth and everyone she knew and held dear. Her uncle, after raising her to the position of queen, washes his hands clean of her, and becomes her judge and jury. Her father, whom she would turn to when she needed counsel, abandons her. Her beloved brother, arrested for having indecent relations with her. Locked in the tower with an aunt who despised her, and ladies' maids that have been chosen to report all that she does. Anne is utterly alone. Confident in the love that she felt was between her and Henry and his penchant for theatrics, Anne held out hope that he would drop the charade and release her from this nightmare. Little did she know that in 13 days' time, her king will have ordered her death. This story starts somewhere around the end, because the end for Anne was approaching. Henry VIII, having already been through the public spectacle of divorce from Catherine of Aragon for failing to provide a son and heir, and a union against God's will, now finds himself in a similar position with his current wife. However, this was only the final straw in what was a marriage full of unbridled passion. Hi, I'm your narrator, Rebecca Larson, and in this story, we recount Anne Boleyn's fall from grace.
Henry VIII, the illustrious King of England, is infuriated, and worst of all, humiliated. Anne Boleyn, the woman he has turned England upside down for, has lost his son. You see, Henry believes that he has done what was needed to remove the curse that was on his head for having previously married his brother's widow, in which he was punished by being provided with a living daughter and no sons that survived. During their courtship, and with Henry trying to get a divorce from Catherine approved by the Pope, Anne slipped him a book written by William Tyndale. In it, Henry was able to find the validation that marrying his brother's widow was a sin, and that the justification that he needed could be found within Scripture. It was clear that marrying Catherine was seen as an act of impurity, according to the Bible, and so on this basis, Henry sent his appeal to Rome to be granted a divorce. However, to his great annoyance, the Pope would not support him in his divorce. So, Henry, with some influence from Anne and their advisors, separated from Rome. Through the Reformation, the king was declared the supreme head of the Church of England, and this enabled him to secure his divorce, or annulment, from Catherine, and marry Anne, the woman he had chased to the ends of the earth. Henry thought he had everything he ever wanted, a marriage blessed by God and free from sin, and Anne was pregnant with what they felt was the long-awaited son and heir for England. Then, tragedy. Anne has given birth to a baby girl. The son and heir that they had been waiting for is disappointingly a healthy baby girl. Henry's subjects are now whispering, wondering why the old queen had been disposed of when this new queen can't seem to give him what he wants either. Anne expresses her disappointment to Henry for not birthing the son and heir as she promised. He puts on a brave face and tells her that they're still young, and if God can see fit to bless them with a healthy Tudor girl, well, boys will follow. Their English subjects, however, are not as forgiving. They say that because of that woman, who encouraged the king in his godlessness, God is punishing them with failing crops, famine, and plague. Henry says, by way of his preachers, of course, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. But the English were having none of it. On top of this, England's peace has been threatened. Spain has removed their alliance due to their kinswoman and beloved aunt being usurped by Anne. The French, seeing the conflict between Spain and England, increased their price to support England. Henry, not happy at hearing this, says he never felt he could quite trust his French brother as he once had. Anne is now doing battle at home and abroad. But then reprieve arrives for Henry and Anne in the death of Catherine of Aragon, or so they think. Anne, who is again with child, is now queen in her own right, completely uncontested, 
they feel certain that she is now carrying the son and heir to England, as the sinful cloud that hovered over Henry and Catherine's marriage has now been removed. Henry, on hearing the news of Catherine's death, exclaims, God be praised that we are free from all suspicion of war, and sees this as a message from God. So they celebrate with their legitimate Princess Elizabeth at their side, dressed head to toe in yellow. They were on top of the world. Or were they? Rumors had been circulating around the court that Anne was having issues with her pregnancy. Henry was involved in a serious tilt yard accident. And on top of this, Anne had been made aware that Henry was paying court to one of her ladies' maids, one Mistress Jane Seymour. On the day of Catherine's funeral and in the aftermath of the shock at hearing these pieces of news, she devastatingly miscarries. To make matters worse, the baby appeared to be the son and heir that they had so desperately been waiting for. Henry, devastated at the loss of his legitimate male heir, was furious with Anne, stating that he saw clearly that God did not wish to give him male children, and stormed out of her bedchamber. Now skating on thin ice, Anne decides to assert her position as queen by confronting Henry about Jane Seymour. She says the shock of hearing about the jousting accident and about him pursuing one of her lady's maids was the cause of her losing her England's prince. He says that his lack of male issue was evidence from God that their marriage was invalid and that he had made this marriage seduced by witchcraft and for that reason, he considered it null. Henry, clearly shaken up by his tilt yard accident and the loss of another male boy, is now even more aware of his need for an heir to his dynasty. Anne is fretful. The weather in England has not improved. Relations with Spain and France are no better. And now she and Cromwell were on the outs with each other. Hurt and recovering from yet another miscarriage, she acts impetuously. Wanting to address the rumors swirling about the court, about Henry and Jane, Anne has her almoner, John Skip, give a sermon from Solomon, in which it was said that he lost his true nobility towards the end of his life by taking new wives and concubines. Not only is this a warning to Henry, but it's also a subtle dig at Jane in a time where women were to be modest in their behavior, and the king was enraged. Unfortunately for Anne, this did not have the effect that she desired. Her opinion in the eyes of the English plummeted even lower, and served as a reminder to Henry how much his subjects abhorred his marriage to her. And the rift between Anne and Cromwell became a fissure. After all, in the Sermon of Solomon, she had just had her minister compare him to Haman, who was hung for his treachery. Unbeknownst to Anne, Cromwell has removed himself from court to plot her downfall. A strained hush had descended on the court. Anne was suspicious, and unfortunately, she is known for lashing out when under pressure at those around her. One such incident occurs between Anne and Mark Smeaton, her court musician, 
upon seeing Smeaton look downcast, asked him what the matter with him be, and he replies, it was no matter. Already agitated from the tension surrounding the court and not knowing why, yells to him, you may not look to have me speak to you as I would to a nobleman, because ye be an inferior person. To which he replies, a look sufficeth me. While this is no Fifty Shades of Grey, this was an exceptionally inappropriate comment to make to a queen, especially one who is already on the outs with her husband. The next nail in the coffin occurs with a conversation between Anne and Sir Henry Norris. Sir Henry was a frequent visitor in Anne's court, as he was hoping to woo her cousin and lady-in-waiting, Madge Shelton. It's important to note here that Anne had learned the art of flirtatious conversation in the French court and was expected as Queen of England to always demonstrate submissiveness and chastity, no matter how many declarations of adoration she receives. On this occasion, she mixed up her roles of courtier and queen. Speaking to Sir Henry, she asks if he was delaying asking Madge to marry him because he wanted to marry her instead attempting to use a flirtatious charm like she would back in France, and says, You look for dead man's shoes, for if aught came to the king but good, you would look to have me. The silence that would have hit the room at this point would be deafening. Sir Henry, horrified, replies, If he should have any such thought that he would, his head were off. Then, not happy that her flirtation was rebuffed, Anne snapped that she could undo him if she wished. This exchange spread like wildfire through the court and reached Henry's already disgruntled ears. The 1st of May, 1536, Mayday Joust, 18 days until execution. Anne prepares for the joust as she would for any other spectacle or festivities day. Like Henry, she enjoyed courtly entertainments, so she would not have expected anything to be wrong while preparing for what would be her second-to-last day of freedom. Anne was enjoying watching her brother, Lord Rochford, lead the team of challengers, while Sir Henry Norris leads the defenders. Side note. Henry would have found this demoralizing to his vigor and status as a man. Jousting was how Henry liked to display his knightly masculinity to the court, and especially the women. This is the first time that he was to be a spectator and not a participant, and his jealousy of these fit men would have been boiling in his blood. After the last team had gone through, Henry suddenly got up and left abruptly. This caused a considerable amount of gossip amongst several courtiers, including the queen, as to what might have made this happen. Among the men that Henry took with him was Norris, in which time used traveling between Greenwich and Westminster to question him on his relations with his wife. By this time, Mark Smeaton was already in the tower, having been tortured into confessing to having relations with the queen. Sir Henry was next to be placed in the tower, followed by George Boleyn, Anne's brother. A further four men would be arrested and placed in the tower. Francis Weston, Thomas Wyatt, Sir William Brereton, and Richard Page. 
In Anne's fear at having been arrested, she was prone to having rambling conversations to herself. It's in these conversations that she's heard saying that she worries about what Francis Weston would say about the love he felt for her over his wife. It's alleged that with these men, the queen is said to have procured and incited them by sweet words, kisses, touches, and otherwise, with intercourse taking place. Why Paige and Wyatt were arrested was never clear. However, they escaped with their lives, with Paige banned from ever being in His Majesty's presence again. On hearing of the men that had been placed in the tower with her under suspicion, Anne exclaims how happy she was to be so close to her brother again, even in such dire circumstances. They had always had a close bond as brother and sister, and hearing he was in the tower brought her some comfort. This close bond would be what leads to both Boleyn siblings' downfall. Smeaton, Norris, Brereton, and Weston all stood trial in which only Smeaton pleaded guilty to adultery with the Queen, and all pled not guilty to crimes against the King. Regardless, they were all found guilty and had their heads smitten off. George Boleyn had the added charge of incest with the queen and declared he did not know his sister in such a way and denied all charges laid against him. Unfortunately, he had the same bold and daring attitude that made the king fall in love with Anne. And to defy all of those who declared him an adulterer and traitor, read aloud from a note handed to him in which he was advised not to repeat. It detailed a private conversation between Anne and his wife, Jane Rochford, about the king's lack of bedroom skills, virtue, and potency. George humiliated the king in the worst way and ultimately committed crimes against him. He was found guilty and sentenced to a traitor's death to be hung, drawn, and quartered. This was later commuted to beheading at the king's request. At her trial, Anne hears that she's been charged with adultery, including enticing the men with lavish gifts, incest with her brother, and treason, in which she was to have plotted harm against the king, suggested marrying one of the men when the king was dead, and that she never truly loved the king. Upon hearing these charges, Anne remains valiantly composed and denies them all. She declares that she should have been a better wife, for she could never repay the kindness and tenderness with which Henry treated her and the honor in which he gave to her. Her temper could get the better of her, and she would get jealous at the attention the king bore others. But as for the rest, may God be my witness that I have done no more wrong against him. The Duke of Norfolk her uncle and spokesperson for the peers judging her says she is found guilty of treason against the king's person and will be sentenced to death by burning or by having her head smitten off, whichever the king chooses at his pleasure. She replies that she is prepared to die for offenses that she has committed against the king, but was sorry to hear that innocent men should die for her for having committed no crime. 
After her trial, Anne is returned to her quarters within the tower to await her execution. While awaiting execution, a further blow is dealt. Receiving a visit from her chaplain, Thomas Cranmer, she is advised that her marriage to Henry has been declared null and void. She asks Cranmer, on what grounds can this be possible? In which he replies, due to the king having had prior intimate knowledge with her sister. Anne is shattered. Henry is now a free man, free to marry whomever he chooses. Her daughter, Princess Elizabeth, has been declared a bastard. Her brother and innocent men are dead. And Anne must now face her fate. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty.